right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Holistic Health Masterclass podcast. This is Brett, and uh, we are doing something that we don't normally do on the show, and that is zero editing, uh, zero introduction. We're actually just hitting the record button and going live with uh, Ted um, Kuntz. Is that right, Ted? That's correct. Uh, yeah, from uh, Vaccine Choice Canada. You are the president of um, that organization. And uh, let's just jump right into it, Ted. Um, what's your background? And maybe give us a bit of the scope of, of what Vaccine Choice Canada actually does. Uh, glad to. Thanks for inviting me, first of all. This is great to have this conversation with you. Um, I'm the parent of a, of a son who was vaccine injured and uh, has now passed away as a result of his injuries. And so Josh was injured in 1984. Uh, that um, caused me to begin to review something that I took for granted, that vaccines were safe and effective, which is the messaging that we, we are inundated with from the medical industry. And over those 30 years, I... Um, I've done extensive research of the medical literature and discovered that what the science says and what they tell us the science says are often two different things. Mm -hmm. And so um, I became aware of this organization called Vaccine Choice Canada. Uh, uh, they've been in, in operation in some capacity or other since 1984. Uh, they began uh, in 1982, the Ontario government uh, imposed, they were the first province in Canada to impose vaccination for school attendance for children. And the initial legislation in 1982 did not allow for religious or uh, firmly held conscious uh, decisions to exempt from that medical practice. And so a group of parents lobbied the Ontario government and were successful in 1984 in including personal and religious exemptions, which exist to this day. Right. Um, and so that original group of parents was called Vaccine Risk Awareness Network, and their mandate was to preserve and protect our right to informed consent. And they also had a mandate to uh, bring more awareness to the issue of vaccine injury. Many of the families that joined uh, initially were all parents of vaccine injured children. Right. Uh, my history with the organization, I, you know, I can't remember uh, when I first joined, but I would say six or seven years ago, I, I joined as a member, was invited to uh, become a, a member of the board of directors, and then in December was asked to be the president. So that's my history with that. Okay, great. And I think it's important for people to understand the, you know, because I, I sort of started following Vaccine Risk Awareness Network, so VRAN, um, right. before they became VCC. And I think what's, uh, you know, important for us to put out there out front is that this is not necessarily, and, and I include myself in this camp, it's not necessarily about anti-vaccine. It's exactly. more about an informed choice based on objective information, right? I mean, I think, is that a fair statement to make? Absolutely, Brett. And, and that's the challenge that we're facing uh, with this movement is, I mean, our title clearly says who we are, vaccine choice. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in spite of our efforts to educate the mainstream media in particular and ask them to, to uh, describe and, and uh, recognize who we are and what our mandate is, they persist in using the language of anti-vax. And they do that intentionally. Uh, I wrote uh, all of the major mainstream media and very clearly requested that they begin to use the language of vaccine choice or parents of vaccine injured children or parents for informed consent because those are, that's the language that represents who we are as an organization. And, and they, to an organization, have refused to do that. Uh, yeah. And so what I see is that they're in a campaign of uh, marginalization of censorship, of dismissing, uh, you know, they refuse to 
uh, allow this conversation into the, into the public square. And so what you're doing is really an important service to the community because it's not being done. Uh, our voices have been muted. Um, the experience of vaccine-injured uh, children is, is not being acknowledged. It, it's being uh, dismissed. And, and you can't make a, an informed decision when uh, so much important information is, is not permitted to be uh, allowed in the public square. Yeah. And, you know, you, you bring up something as well that I think is also important for people to understand. And that is that, you know, I've sat in on a lot of these meetings, on government meetings. I've spoken to people like yourself. And I think that there's this misunderstanding or misperception that people somehow just came out of the woodworks and they're anti-vaccine. <laughs> when in actual fact, most people in the anti-vaccine, quote unquote, crowd are actually ex-vaxxers, you know, people that, that trusted the system 100%. They went and got their children or themselves vaccinated, and then they subsequently got injured and or um, died, you know. And I think people forget that. They just think it's a bunch of lunatics out there that have no grounding in science or haven't looked at anything you know, so I don't know if you have any comments on that. Um, you well, know. And, and you're absolutely right. But to be fair, most people think that because that's what they're told by the mainstream media. Uh, mm. But you're absolutely right is that the, the parents in this group are uh, almost uh, uh, to a person parents who did vaccinate their child. Yeah. And so to call parents that vaccinated their children anti-vax or uh you know, against vaccination is, is not a, a fair statement. The, the, the true statement is uh, w we did what we were told. Mm -hmm. And and our children were harmed, and we feel an obligation to make other parents aware that this risk exists, and, and to do their own research. Uh, you know what I admit is that I I wasn't a responsible parent. I didn't do my homework before I uh, allowed my son to, to to take that medical practice that the vaccination. I, I just went along with what was expected, and I, I feel a deep sense of regret that I didn't do my homework. You know, what I find remarkable is parents will do extensive research on something like uh, buying a car seat for their child or a stroller, or, you know, they'll read the labels on baby food jars to, to make sure that their, their baby or their infant is getting healthy uh, food. And, mm -hmm. and, and we're buying products that are safe, and we don't do near that level of uh, most basic research with vaccinations. We simply accept uh, what the, the mantra is, vaccines are safe and effective, and if you don't believe that there's something wrong with you, that you're anti-vax uh, anti or anti-science, or you're uneducated or ill-informed. Yeah. Uh, I would say this community of parents are, are uh, extremely well-informed. And in, I've had many conversations with uh, uh, my family physician over the years about this topic. And at one point he said, Ted, I don't know anybody, including my colleagues, who know more about this topic than you. Yeah. They are not taught about vaccine injury. They're not taught how to recognize, diagnose, treat vaccine injury. Uh, what they're taught is the vaccination schedule. And now they're being taught a module about how to coerce vaccine hesitant parents into vaccinating i mean to me that's not medical practice that's you know they're selling a product and i i i'm really uh i was going to say disappointed but i don't think that word is strong enough i think i'm disgusted with how this medical system has been captured by the pharmaceutical industry particularly the the, the vaccine industry and they've stopped practicing you know a basic ethic of medicine which is informed consent
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, just to sort of drive that point home and bring some context into that, you know, there was a meeting, um, longtime listeners of the show would be familiar with this meeting, the Toronto Board of Health, um, you know, I think it was September, October last year, 2019. And there was a motion put on the table to basically enforce mandatory vaccinations in the city, which would obviously then extend to the whole province, right? And at that same meeting, in addition to proposing mandatory vaccinations and removing religious exemptions and medical exemptions, at exactly the same time, we also need to have a a reporting system, right, to report injuries. And we also need to have a compensation program to compensate people that have been injured. And when I looked at that in context, I was like, so you mean no injuries have been reported is what you're actually saying, because we don't even have a reporting system. You're also saying then that doctors and medical professionals are not acknowledging it. They have no idea what they're looking for. And no one is being compensated because we don't even have a compensation right. program. Right. So, so, so I think that you know, people need to be reminded of that because oftentimes the context is completely lost. Um, you know, you're absolutely right. So uh, a couple of things about what you just said that I'd like to speak to. Um, Canada is the only G7 nation without a vaccine injury compensation program. Wow. And, and of the top G20 nations of the world, there are only two nations who don't have a vaccine injury compensation program, Canada and Russia. Hmm. Every other, so 18 out of 20 G7 nations recognize vaccines cause injury and they compensate for those losses and deaths. In this country, it doesn't happen. And, you know, you talked about the Toronto Board of Health. Uh, uh, Two years ago, the Canadian Medical Association at their annual general meeting, so this is the Association of Medical Doctors, they had two motions that I thought were uh, pertinent here. One was uh, a recommendation to make childhood vaccinations mandatory in Canada, which passed by an overwhelming majority. The second motion was to uh, uh, have a vaccine injury compensation program in Canada, and that one failed by an overwhelming majority. Huh. That at doesn't make same, any sense. At, at yeah. the same meeting. Wow. Why, why is that? I mean, do you have any insight into that or, or intuitions? Well, the, the, the argument was uh, put forward by those uh, who voted against the, uh, the compensation program was uh, vaccine injury is rare. And uh, if we uh, have a compensation program, it might um, uh, negatively impact people's confidence in the program. So it's better not to have a compensation program. So the perception yeah, so the, the, yeah. The, and what it says is, you know, we don't really care that, that children are, and adults are injured by vaccination, that, that the ideology, preserving the narrative, preserving the ideology is actually more important than compensating for injury. Uh, wow. I, I find that appalling that our medical system has, has uh, gotten to that place where they're so fully captured by it. The second thing is, is that the injury is not rare. It's just rarely reported. Yeah. And so uh, a study that was conducted uh, for the HHS Health and Human Services in the United States, I think in uh, 2017, I'll have to go back and look at my date, uh, they uh, recognized that less than 1% of vaccine injury is reported, less than 1%. So that yeah. means that 99% of vaccine injuries go unacknowledged, unreported. Mm-hmm. The reporting system that we have, we actually have a reporting system in Canada, but it's not well utilized. The system is entirely voluntary. There's no consequence for not reporting. 
And so this is not a system that can be relied upon. And if you were to ask doctors to recognize vaccine injury and report it, they can't do that when they're not taught what is vaccine injury. They're told, like the rest of us are, you know, they get the same, uh, you know, propaganda that we get. And I would say more so is that vaccines are safe and effective. And so there's nothing to report. So, uh, and and even the reporting system that exists in Canada is not uh, easily available to the public so that the public could look up and say, okay, so how many injuries were attributed to measles, to MMR, to hep B, to, you know, it, the lack of information is, um, is unacceptable. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I've had, uh, wow, I've done a lot of podcasts on vaccines. So, you know, Del Bigtree, mm-hmm. James Lyons-Weiler, Jeremy Hammond. Yes. So we've kind of unpacked a lot of the details that you just spoke about. And I would just encourage anyone watching this or listening to the podcast, you know, you can go back into the archives and, and get into some of those details. But, you know, you're pretty spot on. And, and as far as I can recall anyway, the last data that we have from the U.S., which I think was 2016 or 2017 was around 56 or 57,000 injuries that were reported. Right. So if that's 1%, tack on a couple of zeros and then you've got the actual Absolutely. number. And then if you also consider, this is important for people to know that most of the, of the compensation is actually settled out of the system. So right. we don't really, and this is of course the U.S. because Canada is is light years behind in in all of this. So we have to look to the U.S. Um, for for some of these numbers. Um, so yeah, you know, you're you're pretty spot on in terms of the underreporting and um, you know the the underdiagnosis, if you will, of of injury. Um, and the other thing I would add to this, sorry, the other thing I would add is that there's also a small window. Um, post-vaccination that you would classify an injury, right? So, you know, after six weeks, well, now it's not associated with the vaccine, right? right? So you could have um, autoimmune issues when you're 25 from a vaccine that you got when you were five. And all of a sudden, there's no association. Therefore, you know, there's, there's no injury. Well, and I think that's one of the shocking things that I discovered when I began to really do the research is you discover that vaccines are not required to undergo the same level of safety testing as every other pharmaceutical product. And so they do not do double-blind placebo-controlled studies. None of the vaccines on the childhood schedule were tested against an inert placebo. And you can't determine if a product is safe if you don't test it against an inert placebo. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that the, the period of safety testing, the length of period that they monitor, actively monitor for uh, adverse effects from a vaccine is between three and five days on average. Wow, that's it. So six weeks, that's I was it. way out the ballpark. <laughs> you know, the only uh, vaccine that was monitored uh, for adverse events following vaccination uh, for that length of time for six weeks was the MMR shot. They monitored uh, monitored it for uh, 42 days. But some vaccines are monitored for as short as 48 hours, and the average is between three and five days. And so no immunological problems, no neurological problems, those will never be discovered in three to five days. Like, so it's, it's um, appalling that we call that our safety testing. And, and when I see the literature that, you know, our vaccines are thoroughly reviewed for safety, it's just not true. Uh, It's, it's fraudulent. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, that's something that I've discussed fairly extensively on the show. So I I don't, I don't want to get into that too much because I really want to bring us on point to what's going on in Canada right now, because um, I don't know where you want to start with this, but, you know, I think this is really the meat and potatoes of what's happening right now and why you and I are talking, but maybe um, let me just 
sort of segue uh, into this section by by asking you about the legal challenge that you put in. I think you you, you put in a sue or a legal challenge uh, a few months ago, right? Six months yeah. ago or something like that. Well, we did one in, in the fall against. Yeah, so the let's Ontario talk about the one in the fall first, and okay. then we'll kind of yeah. So what what was the, the that one. all about, and um, what's the backstory well, there? So as I said in my earlier comments, is that back in 1982, the Ontario government uh, mandated vaccinations for uh, school attendance in, in Ontario. And uh, we find that that situation has been appalling, but they, they became even more aggressive a couple of years ago where they said, if you don't vaccinate, uh, you had to attend a, a mandatory education session. Uh, and, you know, and, and then they included a, an affidavit that you had to sign in order to get your exemption. And, and the affidavit said that you knowingly are putting your child at risk. Well, this is compelled speech. Like, this is not informed consent. The, the education session uh, was absolutely appalling in terms of its bias and its lack of uh, evidence-based medicine uh, in order to prove the points that they made. And so we felt it, it, it was enough. Like, they have pushed this violation of our rights and freedoms uh, as far as we're willing to accept it was time to take the government to court, and the decision was made that we would sue the Ontario government for violations for since 1982 uh, of our rights and freedoms to informed consent, to uh, security of the person, bodily sovereignty, and the right of parents to make medical decisions for their children. And yeah. so that case is going forward. Yeah. We, we filed a statement of claim. The government filed uh, in a... a a statement of defense, which uh, I, I thought if I was the government, I would have been embarrassed with their statement of defense. It was a 15-page document that was double-spaced uh, that basically said vaccines are safe and effective, vaccines saves lives, vaccines is an important uh, development of modern medicine, uh, and therefore everybody should have them. That was basically their defense. So the sound there, bites, basically, that we hear. There was not yeah. one shred of evidence to support their position. So our response to that is that we are demanding evidence to substantiate their claims that every vaccine and every ingredient of every vaccine is safe and effective. That's and a, so lot of, we've actually a lot of work. <laughs> a, we've compiled a list, probably a, a, about five pages long, uh, single space that says this is the evidence we're going to ask you to present in a court of law. So what we've decided is to hold an evidence-based discussion in a court of law that demands that the government uh, substantiate the claims that they're making around vaccination and justify that their violations are, are justified. Okay. First of all, that's awesome. Um, 100% behind you. And I know many listeners and people watching this video are going to be rallying around you. A couple of things that come to mind, first of all, um, you know, just to circle back, you mentioned the affidavits. And I know a lot of people watching this are from the Ontario area. They're, they're you know, Canadians. That clause that's in there that says you are willingly and knowingly um, putting your child, putting at your risk. child at risk. What what are what are the implications of that? Are there consequences if something else happens, or what does well, it really mean? Do you know? You know, and, and that's the shocking thing. So, in their statement of defense, they claim that that wasn't actually a required statement that the parent didn't have to sign that, and that it's only um, uh, for information purposes only. But the legal advice that we've got is it's included as part of an affidavit. There's no separation out. You, you put a signature below it. They're saying, of course, you, you're, you're being, uh, it's compelled speech, first of all. And second of all, you're, you're admitting uh, as a parent that you're putting your child at risk. Well, what, what kind of uh, potential risk does that expose a parent to, that, to have their child uh, apprehended? 
Uh, and so, yeah. and it's also uh, so incredibly disrespectful that a parent would knowingly put their child at risk. Like no one mm-hmm. does that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, you know, one only has to go and look at uh, what's happening with David Stefan um, with, with that whole situation. Exactly. And, you know, he's, he's right on our page. Um, you know, something that was unrelated yeah. to, to vaccinations altogether, all of a sudden he was pegged with vaccinations, right? And failing to provide the necessities for life, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that, you know, that's something that I've, you know, I've had David on the show a number of times and we've, we've spoken about that because that's a very, very slippery slope oh. um, once you go down that, that road. Um, uh, and it sort of know, leaves us wide open, you, yeah. you know, to anything could happen to your kid and all of a sudden, oh, boop, you know, you, you didn't choose to vaccinate, you put your child in harm's way, um, okay, great. We're going to take them away from you. We're going to lock you well, up. You know, who knows, okay. right? You know, it's one thing to apprehend. It's another thing to put the, the parents in jail like they did with the Stefans. Like that's, um, you know, this government has gotten so far uh, in terms of their overreach. Uh, it's time that we hold them accountable and stop this this yeah. tyranny, this medical tyranny that's happening. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about what's going on now. And uh, what I'm going to do, if I may, is I've been knee deep in the weeds here looking at all of the stuff that's coming down the pipeline. And I've sort of collated some some of my thoughts um, because what we're now looking at, and I don't want to turn this into a COVID-19 podcast, um, but what we're looking at right now is in the wake of everything that's going on, we've now started to see that while we've all been locked down, that some bills have been passed in Canada, right? We know that there's a pretty shocking bill that was passed in Alberta. We know that there is, um, I don't know if it's a bill, but I think it is in uh, Quebec. And now there's Bill 188 in Ontario. Um, I don't know if you want to sort of paint the picture. You you obviously know about those bills. Um, You know, I think you and I off air decided to try and understand exactly what those bills were saying. But one of the big things in those bills is, of course, mandatory vaccinations, right? So if, if you know, and I find it interesting and, and shocking um, that we went from very quickly, actually, we got to stay locked down for two weeks to protect everyone. Fine. No problem. We didn't know what yep. we were dealing with. Great. Yep. All of a sudden, we got to eight weeks, just like that, right? Eight weeks. And now all of a sudden, we're not coming out until we have a vaccine. Like we moved right. through that process right. Right. extremely quickly. And on the back end of all of that, we're f- four months in a time of recording and magically we've got a vaccine that's going to be ready to go anytime soon. So perhaps let's start with the bills first and then I'm going to um, weigh in with what's actually going on with the vaccine um, just to sort of converge those points. Well, uh, to me, what they've imposed is, uh, you know, what I say is that the, the pandemic that we're experiencing is not, is, is not a virus. The pandemic is fear and, and they have, you know, they have created this fear. This is manufactured fear. And and I was like you in the beginning, you know, I, I was uh, in the United States at the time that this all unfolded. Uh, when I returned to Canada, I was uh, suggested that I quarantine for 14 days. I, I'm willing to do that. You know, sure. that, uh, there was lots that wasn't known about that situation. But we know more now and we know that it's not as dangerous as it's been made out to be. But they haven't backed away from from, from that narrative. And so, you know, what I see is, for example, we've got some measures now to reopen Canada, which is great, but they haven't backed away from the narrative that this is an unusually dangerous uh, virus that requires unusual measures of containment, isolation, masking, uh, 
you know, restrictions. Uh, and if anything, they have taken that fear and they have used it as an opportunity to, to impose even more egregious violations of our rights and freedoms. And so the bills that you mentioned, Alberta, uh, Ontario, Quebec, I mean, these are outrageous bills of violations of our personal space, our privacy, our right to make medical decisions for ourselves and our, and our children. Um, and I, I don't know why every uh, citizen of Canada is not absolutely outraged with what's yeah. happening. We've been turned, uh, turned from free citizens to enslaved citizens, captured citizens in, in a very short period of time. And, and you know, the, the, the references have been made to Nazi Germany of what was happening in the, in the 1940s. And, you know, people forget that Germany was a thriving democracy b- before Hitler came in and, and, and uh, took over and, and used the same kind of fear tactics. And we're witnessing the same human dynamic of being captured by fear, coerced, and, and, and convinced to give up our rights and freedoms. And um, uh, to me, you know, the, the details of each of those bills uh, might be somewhat different, but the impact of it is, is to me, it has uh, people confined, it has them terrified, afraid. Um, we're, we're, we're u- using this fear to shame our own neighbors, uh, mm-hmm. to, you know, yeah. it, it's, it, this is 1984. I mean, I've, I've heard people now, instead of calling it COVID-19, they call it COVID-1984, which I yeah. think is actually a much more accurate. It, it captures that this is not a virus. It's a, it's a, a narrative that is uh, um, undoing our, our society as we knew it. Well, and, and I think it's also a narrative that's starting to fall apart. Um, yeah. you, you know, when you start looking at the likes of, and of course, this will be very controversial to some people, but when you start looking at what people like Dr. Rashid Batar are saying, if you look at Judy Mikowitz, if you start yeah. listening to these types yeah. of people who have tons and tons of experience, I mean, decades of experience, there's virologists coming out of the woodwork from all over the world that are questioning the official narrative. And what I find interesting, you know, I've, I've sort of termed it like this, and perhaps you, you'll either agree or at least have some insight into this. I believe that this pandemic is a Trojan horse to usher in other types of nefarious agendas. And one of them, obviously relative to us, is mandatory vaccinations. Because in every one of those bills, nowhere does it say we're just making COVID-19 vaccinations mandatory. It's we're making all of them mandatory. Just it's a little slip, you know, and and that has very, very significant implications, obviously. Um, I absolutely agree. To me, it is a Trojan horse. And we're being programmed to accept uh, this level of uh, control, you know, this separation from citizens, this wearing of masks, even though there's no evidence that a mask prevents viral infection or transmission. I mean, it, it, we're, uh, we're being coerced and, and um, conned. And, and you're right, is that there's no distinction being made here that, you know, it's just this uh, particular virus that we're going to uh, consider mandating. Uh, you know, what we know is the vaccine industry, and Bill Gates has been, has been very clear with his agenda. He wants uh, vaccines for all humans on the planet. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the, the market that, that's uh, untapped for the vaccine industries is the adult population. So we've uh, mostly captured uh, ch- children. 
uh, you know, in, in most places, the vaccination rate is 85, 90, 95%. Some countries, it's 99%. There's, no, there's not much room left for growth. And, and the mandates around childhood vaccination is not to capture the 1% or 2% that are selectively choosing to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. That's, that's not why all of these mandates are in place to capture that 1% or 2%. It's around setting a, a, a psychological condition that says, we know better than you uh, what's needed here. We'll impose these products and you don't have a choice. And, yeah. and, and, and we're doing that uh, around children and we're doing it. Now we're moving into the adult uh, population, which is where the money really is to be made. And we also know that there's more than 270 vaccines under development. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, this is uh, the other piece that is part of this, and I'm sure your other guests talked about this, is the vaccine industry is not legally liable for the harm or injuries caused by their product. And then when they can coerce governments to make them mandatory, so they have a product that they don't have to properly safety test, they have no liability for injury, and they get governments to mandate it, so they don't even have to advertise their products. I mean, it's from, from a, a, a capitalist perspective, they, they've hit the gold mine. Oh, it's, it's the perfect business model, right? It's the only product that works when everyone takes it. It only works if everyone takes it. And if anything goes wrong, we're not liable at all. Um, I mean, amazing, right? Like if I could find a business model like that, uh, sign, sign me up. Um, but, but I think, you know, let, let's also segue into, let's talk about the, the vaccine, you know, itself. And I'll just sort of hit a couple of the high notes because I've been researching this uh, for, for quite a bit now. You know, people think that uh, a vaccine, and I'll come back to what I said earlier, a vaccine appearing in five months out of thin air must raise some very, very serious questions. We need to ask these questions. First of all, how long does it normally take to manufacture, develop, research a vaccine? According to Dr. Paul Offit, who's the godfather of vaccines, if you rush it 20 years, normally 26 years. Okay, that's how long it takes. So, the question then becomes, and maybe we'll get conspiratorial, but how did we magically come up with the vaccine all of a sudden? How are we that close after five months, right? So either we knew about it, that's one, and maybe we don't want to go down that road, or two, we know that we're trying a different method for vaccination, right? So we know that traditionally, if you're using dead viruses or live viruses, that's going to take a long time, you know, safety trials, phase one, phase two, et cetera. But now we've, we've got this newer technology, which is RNA-based um, uh, technology, right? So we can do things quicker, but I think it's important for people to realize that we've never, ever managed to get an RNA vaccine to work. And all of the RNA vaccines, we're not talking about RNA viruses, by the way, we're talking about RNA vaccines. So there's, there's a difference there. The RNA vaccines are all still in, in research and clinical trial stages, all of them. So not one single RNA vaccine has ever been approved for human use, right? One. Two, we've known about coronaviruses for decades, Yes. right? We've known about all, all the different kinds of coronaviruses. We've never been able to manufacture a vaccine that effectively works on coronaviruses. Um, if you want to take a look, go look at the flu vaccine, right? Okay, what was last year's, I think, was 9% effective was actually oh negative nine. Um, <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, so you know, um, again, for those listening, go back to my podcast with Jeremy Hammond if you want to get into the details of that. The other thing that we need to understand is just like the flu, the 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 flu, we get different different strains that pop up every year, right? This is why the flu vaccine has to change. And I asked this, um, you know, I wrote a blog article uh, which was all about. This was a month ago now. 
there was a study that came out of China that showed that SARS-CoV-2 you know, had mutated 30 times at that point. The last report I got from someone was 140 times, 141. We've now also identified that there are 5,000, at least 5,000 genomic sequences. Um, you know, for those listening, go to nextstrain.org, next and uh, they're doing real-time genomic sequencing with labs around the world. So my point is this, is if you're creating an RNA-based vaccine that is relying on genomic sequencing, um, that is mutating all the time. So yeah. what are we going to do? Like, are we, you know, according to James Lyons-Weiler, who I've had on the show a number of times, I said to him, I was like, James, help me understand this, right? I'm not a scientist. I, I, like, help me understand what are the chances of us actually getting this right? And he said to me, Brett, we've got a one in 1,000 chance of getting this right. One in 1,000 chance of getting it right. And if we do get it right, magically, we're going to have to update the vaccine every quarter. Not every year, every quarter. And it's going to have to be made specifically from region to region because different strains are showing up in different parts of the world. I just, you know, when you start understanding some of this stuff, it, it's, it's amazing how much faith people have in the development of this particular vaccine. But the thing that then disturbs me more than anything is how is the government on board with mandating this? Yeah. What are you trying to mandate? You know, no safety st studies, no animal trials, no nothing because we're rushing it to market. I don't know. Anyway, sorry for the rant, but I mean, it's, it's well, just incredible, you know? I mean, I, I'm with you. I find it absolutely shocking. And, and again, I, I find that uh, most citizens and Canadians, I think, are, are unfortunately more willing to do this than other citizens of the world is that we'll accept on blind faith that what our government is telling us is true. Mm -hmm. or, or what the medical system tells us is true, is that we tend to be very trusting. And I, and I think we ought to be a lot more skeptical. And I use that in a very positive sense. I think skepticism is a healthy quality to have. But it's, it's absent in many people when the topic is, is vaccinations. But the piece that concerns me even more is that we've got governments that are knowingly um, uh, pushing forward an agenda of, of uh, mandatory vaccination for covid when they know, you know, uh, Teresa Tam and Bonnie Henry and, you know, each one of these uh, medical officers know that we've been trying to develop a coronavirus for 20 years without success. That's, that, that's, that's no, no secret. That, that's common knowledge in, in the, the vaccine in medical industry. And, and we also know that this vaccine is that they've been given permission to bypass animal testing. Yeah. And, and, and one of the reasons they haven't been able to develop the coronavirus vaccine is because it causes the, uh, what they call pathogenic priming or dis disease enhancement where it actually makes the disease worse in people. And, and the way you test for that is through animal studies and, and no other coronavirus vaccine that they've uh, developed so far has been able to get past the animal studies because of pathogenic priming. And yet magically we don't have to test for this one and we're going to start on humans. And I can't imagine, you know, an ethics committee that would pass that would find that acceptable. First of all, like where, where is our ethics oversight? Second of all, what citizen would, if properly informed of, of, of the risk in the absence of safety testing would say, stick it in my arm, particularly when 90 to 95% of the population is not at risk of this virus uh, in terms of significant harm. And so to me, that's all risk and no gain. Yeah. And, and I can't imagine any thoughtful citizen saying, 
uh, uh, I'm going to take that risk. Yeah. Well, you know, I watched a very interesting um, video. It's, it's literally from two days ago is Dr. Paul Offit being interviewed by the, I, I think he's the director of Med, Medscape, you know, a big website. If you type in any medical thing, like, you know, Medscape comes up, right? So there's a video with the, the director and Dr. Offit speaking about, you know, coronavirus vaccine in context. And I, I, I'm going to post the link, I think, um, to this underneath the show notes so that people can watch this because, you know, if the, the, everyone is questioning sources, right? Everyone's going, what are your references? What are your sources? Oh, that's some crackpot, you know, Bob's blog and they're affiliated with whoever, you know. And, and I think it's important for people to hear this coming out of the mouth of people like Dr. Fa Dr. Fauci, right? I mean, he released under the CDC umbrella on mainstream media that the vaccine is likely not to work, or we don't know if it's going to work. Right. And, and Dr. Offit has also said, you know, he said, look, you know, if we rush these things, just like you were saying, we have to bypass certain things. And we're going to have to bypass animal studies as one. We're also going to have to bypass population studies. So large-scale population studies where, you know, you sort of slowly drip things out and you pay attention to what's going on, you monitor side effects, you monitor efficacy. And he said straight up, you know, he said, look, we're not going to do that. We, we can't. We don't have time. So they're just going to throw it out there. The, the people that are going to get this first are going to be your frontline workers, your grocery store workers, you know, who, um, maybe daycare workers, whoever that is, right, on the front lines. And then we're going to see what happens. And he says verbatim in this video that we are releasing something out there, we're putting it out there, and we're hoping that it's going to work. We're hoping that it's going to be safe, but we have no idea until we put it out there. Now, again, I want people to view this through the lens of mandatory vaccinations, right? I want to view it through that lens. If you think that after everything we've said that this should be made mandatory, then you obviously haven't listened to what we're talking about. You, you know, so I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that it's all about choice. You know, if you think that you're scared to death and you want to get the shot and it's going to change your life, you go for it. No problem. That's right. That's right. But um, so... But, but it, don't insist that I uh, make exactly. that same choice. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, what's interesting now is, um, you know, Donald Trump, uh, he's, he released something, I forget, it was like a week ago, there was this article and he was saying, oh, you know, we're probably going to get over um, coronavirus without a vaccine on mainstream media, you know. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at the article in there, they had done surveys with people, they'd done polling and they said, you know, how many of you are going to get the vaccine? Like 50% of people said they wouldn't. And I've read other polls where it's 20, 25%. So I think that people are starting to question now, you mm -hmm. know, this has all just come out of, out of the blue and all of a sudden we've got 5G surveillance. We've all of a sudden got this technology, facial recognition cameras going up. We've got you know, robotic dogs in Singapore, making sure people are social distancing. This stuff, it didn't just appear out of the ether. No, no. Magically, you know, in five months. This is a well-orchestrated, coordinated, uh, planned event. Uh, if anybody, and, and those that, that call this a pandemic, uh, to me, are, are absolutely on target. You know, the fact that the entire world outside of Iceland or Sweden and, and a few countries have been, have been captured by this narrative and have locked down their citizens with no evidence to substantiate that 
tells me that there's something else going on here. And, you know, to me, we don't have to go down a rabbit hole. We simply look at what's happening. When else in the history of mankind have we shut the world down like this, shut our parliament, shut our courts, uh, violated the rights and freedoms of citizens over something that may cause harm and the evidence doesn't actually support that. And still we won't retract and say, you know what, we overreacted, we've made a mistake, our apologies, let's get back to normal. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, this is the thing that astounds me is like, why can't, you know, I, look, I get it, right? Predictive modeling is predictive modeling. Like you, you put your best foot forward and if it doesn't come out the way you, you expected, then you say, okay, it didn't work, you know, that we were wrong. But, but, the government and the scientists are doubling down now. Right. You know, it's like, oh, no, no, it still is. It still is. And it's like any which way you want to cut it, right? So now people say, oh, well, there's probably way more people infected. I'm like, okay, then let's say that. Maybe the whole country's infected. That still means now that the death rate is even lower. That's so right. any which way you want to cut it, it's not holding up. Th this is not a dangerous virus. We don't need these extraordinary measures. Uh, to me, we treat it, you know, the, the mortality stats are, are looking like influenza. And, and so what I say to people is, how would you normally respond during an influenza season? What are the things that you do? You know, you wash your hands, you, you know, if, if you're sick, you stay home. Those kind of, we, we ought to be doing all of those things. Anyway, but we, yeah. But we ought not to be standing six feet away from somebody. We not, ought not to be putting these cloths, masks on our faces that have no ability to, to, to prevent infection or transmission. To me, those are psychological tools that is being used mm -hmm. to continue to intimidate us and, and keep us afraid. They're talking about returning to school and having our kids being masked. I just think, uh, I, I can't imagine the psychological trauma for our children. They'll be afraid to play with other children, touch other children, uh, stand close. I mean, I've heard stories about, you know, a family finally getting together, the parents and, and their and their. Uh, grandparents and the grandchildren and they're trying to maintain their social distance and the story that I was told is a grandpa reaches over to his grandson who's sitting there and he starts to just rub his toes and and, and, the, and the grandchild turns to his mom and says mom grandpa's touching me and it's like this panic mm -hmm. and I just think oh my god like how have we fallen so far and and been so captured by this invisible uh, boogeyman Right. Yeah, and so fast as well, right? You know, yeah, I've seen, um, you know, before we move on, I've seen uh, rules that have been laid out by schools in Quebec. And uh, yeah, same thing. You know, the kids have to sit in their seat all day long. They're not allowed to share pencils or crayons or anything like that. They have to eat lunch at their desk. So there's no going outside. There's no after school activities, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. You know, you got to wonder, like, if you keep doing that, <laughs> Um, what, how does that weigh on you psychologically? Well, the psychological impact is significant. And, and this is a population that's not at risk from COVID. Exactly, exactly. And, and, so, and, and the other piece that, that this re-entry program, to me, it doesn't make any sense. They're re-entering by sector. Well, I think, you know, and if I'm wrong, I'd like somebody to explain it to me, is we, we know which populations are vulnerable and which ones aren't. To me, reintroduce the populations that aren't vulnerable back into life. Uh, but you don't do it by sector. You do it by vulnerability. And exactly. So, yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't know how they say, well, hairdressers can now go back and, you know, uh, we can do this. We can, we can do that. But, you know, we, we can't go to a pub. Like, yeah, okay. it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, no. you know, so, so let's, um, let's sort of 
bring us into a different thing? Because I think a lot of people are aware of some of the things that we've spoken about and perhaps some things that we spoke about they're not aware of. But, you know, what are you guys doing now? Because Vaccine Choice Canada has, you, you are in the middle of launching a second challenge and you are now suing okay. the federal government. So perhaps uh, share, you know, what, what what's that all about and uh, what... You know, yeah, there. so that, that's the news is, I mean, we've been exploring uh, a legal challenge against the government of Canada and, and other bodies that are, will yet to be named as we file our, our statement of claim. But we came to realize is that uh, the violations are not ending, they're continuing and they need to be stopped. We need to send a, a strong message to our government that this kind of violation of our constitutional rights and freedoms is not acceptable. and uh, and, and they, need, they need to be held accountable. And so uh, the board of directors made a decision uh, last week that we would uh, formally move ahead with a legal launch against the Canadian government. And we will be using the same lawyer, uh, Rocco Galati, that, we use, uh, that we're using in our Ontario challenge. Um, he is a constitutional expert in Canada, and uh, uh, he understands uh, better than probably most lawyers in Canada the, the violations of our rights and freedoms and, and the need to protect it. And uh, this is, uh, you know, it's a bigger mandate than was the initial intention of Vaccine Choice Canada. Um, but what we recognize is, is that what's similar is the protection of our rights and freedoms. And, you know, we, were, we weren't seeing anybody else stand up and, and be a, uh, you know, take a position and saying, this is unacceptable. These violations need to stop. And um, so we've, we've made that decision. So on Friday, we uh, announced to our members, and we're in the process this week of developing a public announcement message that will go out. And we'll declare that we are, are going to hold the government of Canada accountable to an evidence-based conversation in a court of law. And we want them to justify that, that their violations are are warranted, are, are the minimum required, and they're justifiable. And uh, you and I both know that uh, there's more than enough evidence to suggest that uh, that their actions are, are can't be defended. So what, um, you know, 100% agree with you. What, what, are, what are your intended outcomes um, of that? Are we just talking about scrapping any idea of mandatory vaccinations or are there well, more Well, that details? would be a piece of it, but, you know, all of this, these self-isolation measures, these uh, masking policies, the, these having a stand on dots in the store, uh, you know, all of those things is, is uh, completely unwarranted uh, and uh, unnecessary and, and it's not supported by scientific evidence. And so we want to we send a strong message to government that these measures are unacceptable for both this and for any other future pandemic. They can't just uh, erode our rights and freedoms, violate our rights and freedoms the way they are. They've suspended our democracy. Uh, mm -hmm. they've, they've, cl they've closed our courts. They've, they've suspended parliament. So our, our, our mechanisms of holding them accountability ha have been suspended. That's not acceptable in a, in a democracy, yeah. in a free country. Uh, there's no justification for that. Uh, we've never done that before. You know, even during times of war, we haven't suspended our courts and our parliament. So uh, we want we want a judge uh, to be able to firmly decide that the measures uh, undertaken by the Canadian government are overreached, are unacceptable, they're a violation, and we want them retracted. But we want a strong message sent that this is illegal, uh, mm -hmm, and and, mm -hmm. and that be uh, declared. Yeah, and you know, obviously, there's going to be the naysayers who are who are going to say, well, how do we open things up? You know, what what are we going to do because we're going to put 
people at risk. And, you know, there's just a couple of things I want to add. First of all, I mean, that's incredible. Um, I'm going to ask you in just a second how people can get involved and, and we'll, we'll uh, loop all of our listeners in. Um, but, you know, I wonder to myself, uh, well, this is the way I see this anyway, is we've sort of painted ourselves into a corner now. Yes. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like, I think if after two weeks we sort of said, wow, well, you know, it wasn't so bad, it wasn't as bad as we thought, let people out, like let's open up, you know, certain sectors, let's isolate the vulnerable, isolate the sick, let's rush antivirals to market, let's get that out there, right? That, that to me is a much smarter approach that could still be done right now. Absolutely. Quite easily be done right now. I think that's actually the way to go. But what's happening now is is the narrative and the framing around all of this is, you know, and you just take a look at Ontario, right? Well, if we want to open things up, we're going to open it up in phases, okay? And and if we move from lockdown phase one to two and the cases go up, we're going to go back down to one. I'm like, so we're going to stay locked down forever because naturally when you let people mingle, the cases are going to go up. And, you know, so, so the reason why I bring that up is you're going to have the people that are going to say, oh, just stay at home, stay at home, stay at home. And there's a large body of the population um, globally that are all for lockdowns, you know, and, and I'm, I'm finding that is quite disturbing, actually, because you're almost like, you know, as I said, we're just going to stay locked down forever. Um, how do we get out of this now? Right. And I don't have the magical solution, but I certainly think that the complete erosion of democracy, of our rights, of our freedoms, of autonomy, um, I don't think that's the way to go. You know. it, it, well, it's, this is not sustainable. Uh, no. this, is, this is destructive. It's destructive to our economy. It's destructive to our communities, to our families, to our psychological, physical, emotional well-being. So we can't keep doing this. You know, I was willing to participate in, in the self-isolation measures to so-called flatten the curve uh, so that our medical system was not overwhelmed in the beginning. They could get, you know, the supplies in place and get themselves set up. We've done that. Yep. You know, we should take that saying, we, we, yeah, that's right, uh, a month ago, six weeks ago, you know, we've, we've accomplished that goal. Now the goal needs to be what we now understand is we need to develop natural immunity. And when enough people have, have got natural immunity, we have herd immunity. So, and we know, I mean, this is actually, a, you know, you listen to the world's experts and they would say, this is actually a very easy virus for us to manage. Because the good news is, is that, you know, the, the, the only a very small percentage of the population is actually at risk of this virus. Yeah. 90 to 95% of the population will be either asymptomatic or have very mild symptoms. And so th that's great news. Mm -hmm. So let's figure out who the 5% is that are vulnerable. Let's build a containment strategy around that 5%. The rest of us, let's get back into society. Let's, let's have exposure to the virus. Let's yeah. develop natural immunity. That's the way you move through a... a, a uh, you know, uh, 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 an epidemic like this, a viral epidemic. Yeah. Yeah. Lockdown by itself is not, is not the solution. It's, it's a measure, a temporary measure that we've somehow lost track of. And they, they think the, the measurement of success is the number of cases that are identified. That's not the measurement of success. You know, yeah. the measurement of the success, I would say, is how many people have contracted it and develop natural immunity, and how close are we to herd immunity so that our vulnerable population now is safe to come back into society? That should be the measurement of success. So, well, and, and, uh, yeah, yeah, no, and I, I think the other thing is, is the recovery. I mean, how many people have recovered? 
far more people have recovered than have died or, you know, had permanent injuries or or anything like that. Um, And, and, you know, people are talking about Ted, you're being hard hearted about the people that die. I'm not. The the, mm -hmm. the acknowledgement is the people that are dying in many cases would have died anyways. A high percentage of them would have died anyways. They would have been subject to influenza and pneumonia anyways. They, they were elder, they're elderly people. The vulnerable population is over the age of 75 or 80 that have comorbidities. They have other conditions that, that put them at risk. Uh, you know, what I've asked the government is show me the data that says we actually have more deaths this year than, than in other years when you include all, all death totals. And we don't. Hmm. Um, hmm. So, you know, we, we've changed the, the diagnosis of how people have died, and that's also suspect. You know, we, yeah. we don't differentiate between people dying of COVID-19 and dying with COVID-19. And so I believe we have inflated mortality numbers. And we're doing that, I think, to justify the narrative. But you know, when Italy went back and looked at it, they said only 12% of the cases of mortality could they actually attribute it to the virus. Yeah, uh, the other I think people, it was even lower. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. They, they simply died with it. So I agree with you is that they've painted themselves into a corner. They told us this awful story, and they don't know how to back out of that story without losing face. So they, they got to keep saying, well, it's really dangerous, really dangerous, really dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's not really dangerous. And, you know, I go back to one of Mark Twain's quotes where he says, you know, it's easier to deceive people than to convince them they've been deceived. And Mm. to me, we've been massively deceived by our governments and by our medical industry. And we ought to be uh, much more skeptical, as I said, of them. We ought to be asking a whole lot more questions. We ought to be insisting on evidence-based practices as we move forward here. And to me, uh, uh, these uh, isolation measures, uh, you know, social distancing, masking, these, these are not evidence-based. This is ideological-based uh, measures that are being instituted. And, you know, the question is, wh- why are we doing this? You know, is it simply that we're uh, uh, embarrassed and, and we can't back up? Is it, is it uh, because people don't want to, you know, be held accountable for their decisions? Or is there another agenda? And I don't know whether there's another agenda or not. But the fact that this is uh, global in in the way that uh, uh, our citizens have been violated uh, tells me that this was a well-organized, well-orchestrated manipulation of humanity. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, it it didn't unfold the way it normally would. So how how did it happen this way makes it incredibly suspect in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Again, especially how magically out of the ether all of these um, "quote unquote" solutions just appeared, you know, out of thin air, and uh, all the stuff's been going on in the background while we've been in lockdown. You know, um, th- that's the other thing: the bills being passed, the five G oh. and and technology platforms and installations. You know, it's it's just uh, again not to go down the conspiratorial path, oh, but it's but just it's, it's, it's just it, 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 it makes it, you raise an eyebrow. That's for sure. Again, the lack of uh, of a. Uh, accountability. So I just saw how the Heritage Minister of Canada, was it yesterday, uh, uh, announced the, I think, $300 million worth of grants to organizations to combat uh, misinformation about COVID-19. Like, come on, really? Just call it censorship. It's okay. We all know what, uh, (laughs) it's what it is, you know. Um, And this is is the other thing, I think, is, is just like, how are people not questioning censorship i mean come on you know like when a reputable doctor like you can have a virologist immunologist person who worked at the lab a person who's developed vaccines a person who studied microbiology who checks all of the boxes for 40 years 
But if they say anything that's counter to the narrative, they're silenced automatically. How are people not questioning that? You know, it's, well, it's incredible. I, I would suggest most of those people who don't question are, are glued to mainstream media. And to me, we're being lied to by mainstream media. It, it's 100%. a fully captured, uh, controlled uh, medium. It, you know, it, it's not what most people think it is. This is, this is not the free press any longer. It's no. been sold and bought. Uh, it, it has a, an agenda, it has a narrative, and, and you have to stick to the narrative. And, mm-hmm. and when you step outside of that, you, you'll be uh, you know, silenced. And yep. uh, I, I had a phone call yesterday with a gentleman who said, Ted, I'd like to host an online uh, discussion about vaccination, much like we're doing. And I'd like if, if you'd be willing to debate somebody who's on the other side of, of, of this issue and, and advocating for that. I said, great, I would love to have that conversation. So he told me that he went out looking for somebody on the other side to participate in this discussion around the pros and cons, and nobody from the other side was willing to participate in the discussion. Yep. And it, what they actually said was is that it was even irresponsible of him to try to hold that kind of discussion. And he just said, I was shocked that, that you're not even allowed to have the conversation. It's mo- modern, said, modern day book burning, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, you know, we're being told uh, a story. It's a compelling story, but it's not true over and over and over again. And I I think for lots of people to uh, pull back the curtain and realize uh, that the Wizard of Oz or the Emperor has no clothes, uh, that's too challenging a lie to to look at. And so it's like, uh, you know, what the Nazis learned in Germany. If you want to tell a lie, make sure it's a big lie. Because mm-hmm. people can see small lies, but they they can't uh, get past big lies. It's too big. Yeah. And, no, and you're, you're, we're, we're we're in a very big lie right now. Yeah, agreed. Um, so Ted, just to wrap us up, uh, how like what is the best way for people to support this movement, to support what you're doing, to get behind this? Because I, you know, much like yourself, I feel that there is a massive sense of urgency here that we need numbers you know we need numbers we need it now we need to hop on this because what i've seen in the past and you know correct me if i'm wrong but it's once things are consecrated into law then the onus is on us the people to prove to prove doubt right so if we can nip that in the bud and prevent it from even coming in in the first place i think that's the winning strategy uh yeah, to me, we have to challenge this narrative. We have to challenge our governments. We have to hold them accountable. So our legal challenge is a piece of it. It's an important piece of it. But I want, don't want people to say, oh, well, Vaccine Chose Canada is going to take the government to court. You know, I don't have to do anything. I mean, mm-hmm. one is I would wish people would support th- that initiative. It's, it's a very expensive process to, to take a, a, launch a, a constitutional challenge. We've been told it'll probably be in the neighborhood of f- to four or $500,000 when it's all okay. said and done. So we need financial support from that. So people that would go to Vaccine Choice Canada website, and we have a donate section, that would be appreciated. And, and so that's an important challenge. I think it's, it, it's part of what's establishing a legal um, precedent that uh, you know, holds governments accountable. But we, we need to be uh, uh, doing this advocacy work in terms of our rights and freedoms every day. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, we need to be talking to people about uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to wear a mask in Costco. And I've written a letter to the head of Costco saying, you know, the evidence doesn't support that practice. Uh, if people choose to do that, I, I support people's right to choice. But I will not participate in, in a business 
that is taking away my right to choice. And so I need you to know that if you impose those kinds of policies, I will not participate in your services uh, until such time as those policies are rescinded. So to me, uh, we have a responsibility to, to, to hold our ground, to, to de declare uh, what our rights and freedoms are. Uh, we, we ought to be having conversations with our families. We ought to be doing the research. We ought to be contacting our politicians, our, our MPPs, our MPs, and we, we need to say, I need you to stand up for me. I need you to stand up for our constitutional rights. They are being violated. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I drafted a, a brief, the, the House of Commons the, uh, the, of the federal government has a, a COVID committee that's made up of hundreds of our uh, MPs. And I wrote a five-page brief to that committee, and I got a response back yesterday from the administrator saying, um, uh, Mr. Kuntz, unfortunately, the mandate of the committee is not to accept submissions from the public. Wow. I well. just thought, you, you've got to be kidding. This is a, a, a committee of the government of Canada, and citizens of Canada are not invited to make submissions to that committee. What kind of democracy do we live in? Yeah, it's that not is, a democracy. Yeah, that is crazy. And, and you know, I, I just want to not necessarily play devil's advocate, but I think it's important for us to, to acknowledge and to highlight that this is not about, you know, people versus money, right? You know, because you hear that in the public space as well. Oh, you guys are just for, you know, open up the economy. Money's more important than lives, like blah, blah, blah. That's not what's going on because the, the piece that everyone is forgetting is what are the economic implications for right. people's lives. And now that's starting to come, you know, 900% right. increase in suicide calls. Right. Um, how many people are, you know, suicides, alcoholism, domestic yeah. violence, you know, yes. job losses, financial ruin. These things also ruin people's lives. And I a think absolutely. that they're, they're, they're more responsible for, for deaths than the viruses. Absolutely. You know, and that, 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 that is, I think, very important for people to understand that this, what we're talking about here should be viewed through that lens and within that framework. That's right. The, the lens has been too narrow. It's, exactly. As I said, we, we, we've been measuring the wrong thing. We ought to be measuring the health of our communities. And, mm -hmm. and, and that includes all of the things that you've just described, because our economy, our livelihoods, our communities, our families, uh, alcoholism, uh, domestic violence, all those things is part of what's being affected by, and, and I say it's not by the virus, it's by the government's response to the virus. Mm -hmm. You know, when I see media reports that says, COVID-19 uh, is causing, you know, unemployment. I, I, to me, that's, that's deceptive. It's not the virus causing unemployment. It's our government's response to the virus that is causing unemployment. Let's, let's call it for what it is. Let's hold the people responsible for the decisions that they're making. The other thing is we're not talking about uh, putting vulnerable people at risk. We're saying let's acknowledge that there are vulnerable people, but it's actually a small percentage of the population is vulnerable. You build a strategy of, of safety around the vulnerable people. The rest of the people, we ought to be able to live our lives as normal. Yeah. If I want to yeah. you know, go for a walk on the beach with, with my friends, I should be able to do that. If I want to stand closer than six feet, I should be able to do that. If I want to attend a gathering with 100 people or 500 people or 20,000 people, I should be allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 90 to 95% of the population is not affected by this virus. Let's stop acting like we're all at risk. We're not all at risk. Yeah, 100%. Well, on that note, Ted, I'm going to thank you very much for coming on the show today and for having this conversation with me. I think it's a very important conversation to mm -hmm. have. And I uh, just want to say that I'm right behind what you guys are doing at um, VCC. Uh, I think it's fantastic. And I know that your 
following and um, your audience and, and membership has grown significantly over this it period is. because of what you're attempting to do. So um, thanks again for coming on the show today and for joining me. Thanks for inviting me and for the good work you're doing and allowing us to have these kinds of conversations. It's important. Yeah. Awesome. And for everyone listening out there, um, have yourself a beautiful day. And if you enjoyed this episode, share it um, and have the discussion, right? Have this discussion that we're having with people in your circle, with your community, your friends, your family, and so on. Uh, so I'm going to sign it off. Thanks, Ted. And uh, we'll catch up Thank with you, you soon. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Appreciate it.